Welcome to Box Tickers, the stories behind the stats. We're Rachel and Sarah and we're from Art With Art, a creative company fighting for social change in Salford. So, why box tickers? I imagine the only people asking this are the people who haven't had to spend you know, more than two seconds filling out a form. Because for those of us with identities under the protected characteristics in the Equality Act 2010, I'm sure you are also sick of declaring who you are, who you love, your beliefs and your state of health on forms. Ticking boxes left, right and centre and sometimes even sitting in rooms thinking, wow, I am literally ticking your diversity quota box. Now I understand why I'm here. As we all know too well, your data is the most valuable thing about you. We want change. This pandemic has lifted the curtain and shown us that we can do things differently. We didn't need to deny disabled people access to work because they couldn't access the office. That working hours can be flexible and exist beyond the nine to five. That without childcare, our whole system falls down. This has shown us how different the world could very easily have been. Job sharing, virtual meetings, flexible hours, not contracting ourselves to someone's idea of our lives. The new normal has been thrown around so much. A desire to enter into a new world which is COVID free, but that learns from and is shaped by our new understanding of the experiences of others. We can only hope. Here in episode two, A New Normal, we have Gemma talking about parenthood, Ali on neurodiversity and Oscar on gender identity. To kick us off, here's Gemma on Parenthood, listed in the Equality Act as Pregnancy and Maternity. Over the past year, I have struggled mentally, physically and financially, all because I chose to have a baby. At the time, I was advised to write everything down to keep a record of the discrimination I experienced. Thursday the 5th of September. I work in marketing and I'm pregnant with my first child. So I've just had a meeting with the HR manager about my progress and he actually advised me not to apply for a promotion at work because I would soon be going on maternity leave. My partner and I didn't even discuss he would take the parental leave. It was just assumed I would take the leave while he would work. I mean, I'm sure he would have been open and happy to discuss it. But I think there's a cultural problem here that it is the mother that is expected to take the parental leave. So that's just what we did. Monday the 17th of January. So it's post-baby and I'm back at work. I've had almost all my responsibilities stripped from me and I've been left with the more basic routine jobs. This is exactly what I was worried about as it will affect my bonus and pay rise next year. I know I'm not alone as apparently 77% of working mums have encountered discriminatory treatment at work. And why do mums get the title working mums but dads don't get the title working dads? They don't have the same societal pressure to make the choice between a stay-at-home dad and a working dad. Surely the more we see men taking an active role, the more society will see this as normal. So it appears that women have two choices. Ignore their career and work part-time, or work full-time and never see their children. Wednesday the 18th of March. It's 6am and my motivation to get out of bed and get my daughter to nursery is low. Is it actually worth me working? It probably would be, actually, if I was a man. I only heard on the news last night that for every £1 the average man earns, the average woman takes home 90p. And why is the cost of childcare so expensive? My friend Kate says she's not going back to work because she's better off on benefits. She says childcare in the UK is the most expensive in the world, 
effectively penalising you for returning to work. This doesn't sound great for the UK economy. Surely it needs to build opportunities for women to be as economically active as men. Thursday the 2nd of April. As I stood up today at 4pm to put on my coat, I could sense the dagger looks I was receiving across the office. It doesn't matter that I was at my desk before 8am, over an hour and a half before the rest of the office trickled in. No, leaving at 4pm is lucky or lazy or downright cheeky. As long as people are forced to work nine to five, I've had to get used to this attitude. There is resentment towards me because I managed to negotiate for myself a more flexible way of working. I should not be judged for my fertility or the fact I have baby sick on my shirt, but for my skills and talents. Tuesday the 9th of June. I feel absolutely useless. The change in my career prospects is now really impacting my mental health. I'm finding myself feeling resentful towards my partner because he hasn't had to put his career on hold. At a time in my life when I have felt the most vulnerable, I have found returning to work really stressful. I just can't continue this way working a full-time job, rushing to get to nursery before they shut and only spending minimal time with my daughter before I pass out on the sofa with exhaustion. I want to see jobs advertised as flexible by default unless an employer can justify why that job can't be done flexibly. Working mums deserve a career as well as a family life. I want to see a cultural and societal shift we so desperately need for childcare to be seen as a parental challenge rather than a mother's challenge. I want to see changes to our childcare system. Childcare should be made affordable for struggling families helping parents return to work. I want women who suspect they are not getting equal pay the right to know what a male colleague doing the same work is paid. And I want to see employers rethink how they recruit, retain and develop female talent. What we have done up to this point clearly is not working. In a post-pandemic world, we are seeing pregnant women and mothers being forced out of their jobs at a terrifying rate due to a lack of childcare and discrimination. 81% of mums rely on childcare in order to work. The needs of working mothers have been completely ignored during this pandemic. And as many others have warned, we are now seeing that they are the first to go when jobs are cut. The crisis in the childcare sector has been growing for years, but now it is at breaking point. For businesses to thrive, they need to harness the talents, skills and experience of all employees. We are calling on employers, regulatory bodies and the voluntary sector to make vital changes needed to improve the lived experiences of British workplaces so they are the best they can be for everyone. Yeah, I feel like listening to Gemma's piece with all of the the dates, like diary entries, when you see everything like compressed together in that time frame, it really brings it home to you how, how difficult it was even pre-pandemic. And now, you know, people working from home with children... It's, it's been so tough that that lack of flexibility or the just the, there's had to be a sort of forced flexibility um I think just the 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 kind of pressure that we put on on parents that feel like they're failing like they're failing at everything 
know, like for, for a lot of people, it is genuinely not worth them, like financially going to work. They're worse off, but also they're worse off because they have more pressure from work. The kind of looks, the glances, the comments when they're, you know, leaving early, they're not at home, they're failing because they're not at home. They're failing with, because they're not spending time with their child. Like there's so much weighty kind of failure in that. And even the way that, you know, other people respond. So like my friend Rob, um, him and his partner, they decided that she would go back to work and he would be the main carer. You know, that worked for both of them. That was right. But there's been, you know, the stories he has told me about, you know, rocking up in parks or, at, you know, play dates or whatever. And people saying things like, oh, you're babysitting today. You know, is mum having a day off? Like, you don't, you don't, you don't babysit your own child and you don't, you don't have a day off being a parent. You know, it's an equal, it's a shared responsibility if there are two parents then it's a shared equal responsibility I think that's something that's yeah it's it's really difficult it's rooted in so many so many things so many stereotypes so many problems so much misogyny and and patriarchy and it's like it feels like to get the award of super dad or best dad like the the, the kind of level's pretty low like compared with what mum needs to go to like Take your kid to the park. Win. Star. Gold star. Yeah. Show up at the school talent show. Oh, my God. Give the guy a medal. Show up on your own at, like, the, the uh, kids' day centre group. Oh, my God. Like, this this guy's a hero. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Like, you're, so, you're being so nice to mum letting her have a day off. Like, no. Just being a parent. <laughs> yeah, completely. And, and like you said before, I, I've got friends as well who... I had conversations with and they said, you know, I'd really like to take the full parental leave, but I just, I don't know how people would take it. I don't know how work would take it. There's just all of these negative kind of stereotypes and expectations. And we need to, you know, free the men in our lives as well to make them able to do that and feel like it's an option for them. Yeah, because if men feel like they can't even ask their work, if they can have the full parental leave off while their partner goes back to... I mean, where where are we at? <laughs> if we can't even ask the question, if we can't even put the request in, because there's that many barriers of, of stereotypes and prejudice that we can't even ask the question. We're in a we're in a dark place. And as we know, like, you know, it's not an anomaly to be a parent. Like, it's not like a really super rare, 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 rare thing where one in like a million people are parents. Like, it's a very usual thing. So how have we got to this point where, you know, it's taken a pandemic for for a lot of people to see how everything is built on that lack of affordable and sustainable childcare is, is dark? Completely, completely. And it curtails people's choices as well. So, I mean, it's shocking, shocking that we have the most expensive childcare in the world. But it means that people, some people have to compromise on career ambitions because they just cannot make the sheets balance. Yeah. And I think, like you said before, hearing the diary entries really hit home for me. I've worked in a lot of office environments and even when things weren't said cynically, there were jokes made about people having to leave early, about people, you know, not being able to being called up and having to go to school to because their kid's sick and comments made about oh well how are we supposed to do the meeting without them now and you know we we were all kids once like you were a child when you got sick <laughs> yeah. someone had to pick you up 
Like, also, if, if anyone in, of life. if someone in the office wants to swap, uh, like you know, I'll do the meeting <laughs> yeah. and you can go and clean up my sicky child. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Just come and come and hold the hair back. Come, my toddler. Completely. <laughs> I'd rather go and smash the meeting that actually I've put my blood, sweat, and tears into. Yeah. They don't want to get out of work. They're in work. They've prepared for that. Like it's, it's, it's a crazy way to look at things. We've got yeah. a lot of work to do, and and particularly you know we've seen with. Um, you know, kind of over 60s having to shield and grandparents, like how much we rely on free childcare, on free, basically unpaid work. Yeah, Un- unpaid work it's in childcare is massive and it's it's so problematic. Yeah, I think the, the diary entries, I think, really compressed it and I think has really helped drive it home how difficult it really is. So thank you, Gemma, for your response on parenthood and... Next up, we have Ali on neurodiversity. In all of the people, all over the world, no brain is the same. They all look quite similar and have a very similar shape, but they're actually really different from each other. They're pretty smart, our brains. They can think, decide, question, wonder, dream, love, learn. They can forget really important things. They can say yes when they actually mean no. They can overthink, overspend, oversleep. They can do loads of great stuff. And the really exciting thing about brains, right, is we still don't know everything about them yet. Some scientists think we only understand about 10% of the brain's capacity. Actually, there was something that I read about an American woman who was in a coma. And when she eventually woke up, She was fluent in French, but she'd never even spoken a word of French before. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because, like, French isn't similar to English. And um, experts in, like, language and that, they say that French is a language that you can't just learn from, like, being around it. She's also kind of, um... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I went off on a real tangent there. What was I talking about? Um... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was saying how all brains are different, right? So that's why some people like ketchup, but others prefer mayo. It's also why some people like to get up really early, but others prefer to go to bed super late. We're all just a bit different in the way that we do things. And that's because of the way that our brains are built. So with that logic, it should be widely accepted that some people speak slower than others or prefer to work in a particular kind of environment, maybe with less noise or different lighting, or sometimes go off on a tangent in a conversation. These things are just part of someone's brain. But actually, our society isn't always very accepting about these things. And even though all brains are different, our society has been built to accommodate just one type of brain, which is mad. The world that we live in, in the UK, expects us all to behave and understand things in exactly the same way. Apparently it's normal for people to work eight long hours a day, five days a week, and only need two days off. We're taught we have to sit still at the dinner table. We're expected to not get distracted in busy environments. I'm sorry, but we're not all built for that, actually. In some parts of the world, they manage this much better than us. Finland even has a law 
that gives workers the right to flexible working hours. But here, in the UK, neurodivergent people are still being forced to fit into a world that isn't built for them. And that's bizarre. Because, just imagine, right, how productive and friendly the world could be if everyone was encouraged to do things in a way that works for them. Imagine how much nicer society would be if people weren't shamed or made to feel different because they understand the world in a different way. Even though I can't sit still for very long and I struggle to look at the same thing for a long time and I often need something in my hands to fiddle with whilst I'm concentrating, my favourite thing about my ADHD brain, right, is that I can do loads of things at one time and even though I get distracted super easily, when I'm in the right environment, I can get my to-do list done super quick, way faster than you would expect. But that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Finding the right environment. We all need different things. And you know what? You can just ask us what we need. And I understand that not everybody is neurodivergent. And, I, and of course, not everyone will be aware of the things that, that can make life harder for those of us who are. But I'm just exhausted of being made to feel othered because my brain is built different. You probably know someone who is a bit similar to me with these things. Or maybe you know someone who has a tick or someone who says words in a different order than you expect. Or maybe you know someone who has quite special interests in pretty unique things like water filtering systems or farm animals or maybe you know someone who needs a bit more time to get things done sometimes. That's because their brains also work a bit differently. Then you're a divergent. And it is a fantastic thing to be on the autistic spectrum or to have dyslexia or dyscalculia or dyspraxia or Tourette's syndrome or ADHD or to live with any other alternative way of thinking and doing and being and understanding. Neurodivergent people are some of the most creative, innovative and brilliant thinkers we have. And it only makes sense for the world to support us to live full, recognised lives. I mean, if someone can genuinely prefer ketchup to mayonnaise and not be made to feel weird about that, surely it's chill if I go off on a few tangents. Yeah, it's totally chill if you go off on a few tangents, Ali. <laughs> I mean, for me, like it, I love hearing someone else who uh, talk about their ADHD brain because it's just refreshing to feel like you're bouncing off a brain that is like yours, but we're also super different. Like I don't know if mine and Ali's brains will not be exactly the same, but the fact that they work in a similar way. Like when you're in a room together, it just feels like, oh, like this sense of relief, like people just get it. And I think often we're not in spaces where loads of people get it, you know, like you have to explain things. But then you also have to have the time to figure out how to explain it, like the time and space and environment to figure out actually what is it that I need so that when someone, if someone on the rare occasion does ask you, you know how to answer it. Completely. And I mean, for me, so I'm OCD wired, so my brain's different, but I love stories with tangents because my brain is always obsessing about the detail, overthinking everything, swirling around the same things again and again. So when someone grabs me off at an angle and 
I don't know, it's something random or with a bit of a song in the middle of a sentence or just takes me on a story that I wasn't expecting. For me, it's a rare break into something that my brain doesn't get to do very often and it's exciting. Um, so we made a show a few years ago, Sarah, about your life, about your head. About my head, yeah. <laughs> Called Declaration. Um, Declaration was an autobiographical piece of theatre about Sarah, about your experience of going for a diagnosis of ADHD as an adult. Yeah. I think actually, like, for us, making the piece was sort of... I think we learned even more making the piece than actually kind of taking the piece on the road about who we are and what we need. And and I think for me personally, I only started to recognise and accept the positives of my OCD brain when I was helping you to fight and find the positives of your ADHD brain. Yeah. So we had to go back and forth and think about, okay, how do our brains operate? And we actually started to make jokes about how, like, actually, you know, the different ends of the spectrum and how we, like, balance one another out in that and what those positives were and how, you know, we could we helped build each other up and helped kind of the missing pieces. And I think it helped us then going back into an office environment as well and a work environment. I mean, you like our office, so... Sarah needs to work with noise and I don't just mean noise a bit of background noise I mean like basically Sarah's on Prodigy I'm an INLD like that's where our brains are at like Sarah it's about for me the jungle is massive (laughs) (laughs) and as loud as possible so yeah Sarah would often be basically we couldn't find a middle ground Sarah'd be like I need music and I'd say okay not that not that, not that. So we were like, oh, headphones, let's get our headphones in. That's going to help. It's simple solutions. Like Ali said, other countries are taking it into their own hands and making laws, um, making it law that workplaces have to be flexible. But a lot of the things are really easy. And I think sometimes it's just about having, as part of the process of, of taking a new person on at work, of having, you know, of actually asking, what do you need? And not just about a certain type of chair, but like, what do you need in order to work well? So for example, when I worked in an office, I worked at a desk that would face, I was at a right angle to other people. And because my brain sometimes slows down and I need to really think about something, there'd often be times where I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't typing or it might have appeared to other people that I was being lazy or I was having a break, whereas actually I was just processing, but I'd feel really anxious and I wasn't able to be as productive in in my work and that that was detrimental and actually I was usually the one staying there till eight o'clock at night like it wasn't that I didn't have a a good work drive it's just that I worked at a different pace to other people we talk about the fact that like people with ADHD are the marshmallows in your lucky charms the jam in the center of your dodger the sachet in your pot noodle you know and that's a good thing but without you know without the marshmallows the lucky charms are nothing but with all marshmallows it's too sweet we need a balance and we need to have balanced workplaces and balanced lives. I'll be honest, the lucky charms of that marshmallow is just cardboard, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you so much, Ali. I love your tangents. You can go on as many as you want. I'm totally chill about it. Next up is Oscar on gender identity. I want to begin with a few reference points to anchor into. I'm not an academic My perspective is limited to the personal and experiential. I'm here to provoke you, which isn't actually that hard when you're trans. And for clarity, my perspective is one of a transmasculine, non-binary person of colour. I've been asked to speak into the trans box about the future, which is a little amusing because I don't see myself fitting in any box. 
The word trans, I thought, had shifted in meaning over the years. But as I get more access to historical footage, I've started to see that this is not the case. That it's been a discussion that has been around for quite some time. Some people feel that being transgender should be a word that defines a narrower group of people, mainly transsexuals, while other folks, like me, have held it as an umbrella term. When I first came across the word transgender, it was used as an umbrella term for a number of different identities. Some of these identities are binary and some are not. I personally think that's a good thing, and it also creates challenges around how we communicate with each other when talking about being trans. I can completely understand why people have started to use the term non-binary. I also use that as part of my own description, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. My trans experience is a universally human experience, I believe. It is always evolving, and so is its language. At the heart of my journey is one of learning how to go from a place of secrecy, shame, and self-destruction to one of taking responsibility, learning, and growth. This brings me to my first hope for the future. Our trans identities need room to explore. To move on to more nuanced discussion, we have so much to offer from our unique position. Bathrooms and what is in our pants are conversations of distraction and prevent us from really exploring what it means to be us and how we are affected and affect the world around us. We must have space to disagree and redefine ourselves without the constant undermining pressure to make sense to people who are not on this journey. This pressure at the moment is crippling because right now being accepted means not being harassed and murdered in many cases. And that doesn't create a space where we can truly learn about who we are. Sometimes, humans need to go away and find a quiet place to work through their confusion and ignorance, and it's not our job to make the world make sense for them. Also, while trying to make the world make sense, which it doesn't, we suffocate ourselves with a fixed rhetoric of those who are refusing to understand The world is constantly changing around and within us. We understand change and challenge in a very unique way through the very nature of our journey into self-discovery and actualization. As we have more challenging and intelligent conversations about the nuanced identities we experience, our language for it will change too. We deserve the space to have these conversations and move past the justifications of our existence. And there is a lot of benefit for other identities in those conversations too. Some of us have the ability to walk out into difficult, uncomfortable and shifting spaces and keep our heads. Some of us can think outside the box because we live outside the box. Some of us are not just visionaries, but also practitioners in community and support structures that have had to run on very little, communicating with groups of diverse people who have very different needs and finding consensus. I think there are so many incredible and inspiring trans people who are well-placed in experience and skill set 
for where and how we can move forward into a new world that is kinder, more thoughtful, more equal, and less afraid to be more human, which is a bit messy and open to responding to the unexpected. The bottom line is, we are here and we exist. We prove that by the physical fact of our existence all over the world and throughout history. No trans person has to justify that existence. Oscar's so right, no one should ever have to justify their existence to anyone. And usually that justification always comes from, yeah, as he says, people not on the journey. But that that kind of sense of, oh, I just don't get it. You know, you don't you don't have to. <laughs> you don't you don't have to. I think sometimes the most powerful question you can ask someone who, in inverted commas, doesn't get it, is that, okay, well, why do you think that? Why do you feel like that? Because it makes them do the work themselves. I think what's also problematic is that, so the trans community are protected, trans people are protected under the protected characteristic called gender reassignment. Now, I haven't had a positive response from that wording from one trans person yet. No, So me either. Even the people who are making the protective laws are using terminology which feels uncomfortable for a lot of the people who it is for. And, you know, I totally agree that that kind of distraction and the obsession with things is, is just, you know, I always, I always kind of when I've had conversations with people about this, I always think, well, hold on, you know in society how trans people are treated. Why would someone choose to be part of a group that is so discriminated against in society? You know, being trans isn't a choice. It's not like a flippant thing, like, oh, I think I'll do this today on a Tuesday. You know, it's, it's, it's about who you are and you shouldn't have to justify that to anyone. Completely. I think I find it frustrating when... There are people who actually have been very open and understanding of people's sexuality, who attend prides, who, you know, have, have kind of uh, queer members of their family, but, but still think that becoming trans or identifying as non-binary is a decision. Like you said, is something that you opt into, something that should be, should or could be avoided. Like it... it it can't be avoided. That's a part of somebody's identity in the same way as sexuality, in the same way as all of these other things that we're talking about. And like you said, I think when you've got to fight for your basic right to exist, it's it's shocking. I agree that there's just some... It's like trans visibility and rights are so far behind. You know, we are one LGBTQ plus community, but yet, you know, there's sexuality and gender identity within that. And it feels like even within that community, there's such misunderstanding and in wider society. And I feel like, you know, if, if you can wrap your head around sexuality not being a choice, which it isn't, then I don't understand, I can't understand the barrier when it comes to gender identity. I think there's been a real rise at the moment of really public people with real public platform, you know, like J.K. Rowling speaking out, you know, the rise of of TERFs, trans exclusive radical feminists. I, I just feel like you are not a feminist, right? If if you don't have each other's backs, because if you are from a a group who are, 
you know, have, have been historically oppressed or are currently oppressed, then, then you know what it feels like. So why are you pushing down on someone else? I think, and, and you know, people, you know, this is a huge conversation and, and we will we'll get onto that in, in later podcasts. But I think, you know, pe- when people are killed for their very existence, it makes their community feel terrified. You know, they don't, you know, I have, I have trans friends, non-binary friends who don't feel like they can occupy public spaces even. You know, for myself, I feel safer in queer environments and environments where I feel like I can, you know, be affectionate with my girlfriend. But I don't necessarily feel unsafe on a bus walking down the street, you know, and I think, and and Oscar touches on it a little bit, but I know that I've got friends as well who talk about, you know, this idea of being able to pass. Jackie talked about it as well in terms of bisexuality, but being able to kind of um, how your... But like the fact that passing exists and is a thing yeah. is problematic. Like Completely. That is absolutely gender in a binary structure. You should, Completely. You know, there is, there is no passing of any gender because that puts us very much in it's this or you are this, or you are that. Yeah, And or you're that, trying to be that. Yeah, and for some people that fits, that's fine. That's great, but actually for a lot of people it doesn't, and that should be okay. Thank you, Oscar. So we've been asking for a new normal for decades before the pandemic, but now we're in the space between the old and the new, where it's more possible than ever in my lifetime. We're rebuilding the new world, We need to lay out our demands. We need to fight for the demands of each other. Our next episode, episode three, that we're calling In All Honesty, reflects on class, sex and age. Join us then.